Okay, for those who don't have a clue what's going on, Revelation is three things. Number one, Revelation is a, a letter. You can say it louder. Revelation is a letter. That means it's written to specific people in a specific time. And we've got to keep in mind this context as we go through. Number two, Revelation is a prophecy. That is God speaking through his prophet, John in this case, to his people. These are God's words. So we should listen up. These are the lips, from the lips of the creator of the universe. Revelation is a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's an apocalypse. That is something that's hidden being revealed. Something that's unseen being made clear. And God invites us into this journey. And as we go through, there's a lot of picture language. Remember, things represent things, things mean things, images, numbers. They have meanings. And remember, it's not a linear process. This happens, then this, then this, but different perspectives on the same thing. And so we're here in this second to last week. We're going to be looking at Revelation 19 and 20, if you've got your Bibles open. And uh, if we're going to get to next week, which is Revelation 21 and 22, I know you were waiting to get there. I know. I can tell it from your faces. But if you want to get there, we've got one more week, Revelation 19 and 20. And it is really cool. It's, it's really good, and it's, it's warmed my heart this week as I've been thinking and praying it through and preparing. So I pray that for you too. So we're going to hit today hard. I want to show you two big things today, and I'm going to think about what it means for us in our lives, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, and then we're going to, we're going to sing loud in response to the truths that we hear. First thing is, I want to show you a meal that takes place. Let's read together chapter 19 and verses 6 to 21. Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding, supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. It's I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it's the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True with justice. He judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury 
of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Can I just say, every time I read from Revelation, I love just looking up at the end just before I finish and just seeing your faces. Because there's a mixture of emotions, isn't there, as we read this. What do we, what do, we do with this? Well, I want to start by showing you this meal in the first half of what we, what we read. And th- this is a description of the end, right? This is, this is kind of the climax of it all. This is, this is the, the end of it all. And here we've got this figure on a white horse I tell you, it's Jesus. He's faithful. He's true. He's going out with justice. His eyes are like blazing fire. His head is crowned. And how do we know it's Jesus? Because on his thigh, I don't know why the thigh, but on his thigh is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus riding out and the armies of all his people, armies of heaven following. This is a final scene of battle, isn't it? Jesus and his people. But it's a very short ending, isn't it? Because at the very end, we see what happens, verse 20. It puts it quite simply. The beast was captured, and they were thrown into the burning sulfur. It's like there's no, there's no fight, is there? He's just captured. Simple. Job done. It, this is the end. But I want to show you this meal that takes place. Did you see it? At the start of chapter 19, as we read it, it's described as this the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. All through the Scriptures, God has chosen this idea of a meal coming together around a table to play a hugely significant part in his purposes. He loves it. I'm sure even now, maybe you're thinking in your mind of things where God meets his people in a meal. Think back to Exodus. You remember the story of God rescuing his people from, from slavery, from oppression in the land of Egypt. But they're made to work, and, and the people cry out to God, and they say, have mercy on us. And God sends them Moses, who's ill-equipped and doesn't know what he's doing, but he sends him, and he says, I'm going to do this. And God frees his people. How? Through, through the plagues. You remember, there's, there's these plagues that hit all the people in the land in Egypt. But God's people are safe. And the final plague of them all is the most terrifying one. 
the Passover. Remember where the angel of death would come through the camps and the towns and any doors where there was a, a blood stain on from a lamb that had been slain, the angel of death would pass over that house and the eldest son would be safe. But to any who had not done that, the son would die. And in that, Pharaoh says, go, be free, get out of here. And so they do, they, they exit and they get out and, and they get up to all sorts. But God gives them this meal of Passover. Actually, Kat and Chris, can you bring in the communion table for me? Is that all right? God, God gives them this meal, the, the Passover supper, for them to remember what God had done in meeting with his people. And God's people were commanded every year to celebrate this beautiful meal, to remember the salvation, to remember the freedom, to remember the beautiful thing that God had done for them. And then you get to, to, to verses in the Bible like Psalm 23. I'm sure you know it. Psalm 23, you can turn there if you want, you don't have to. It's probably one of the most famous Psalms in the scriptures. And it says this, just let me, lead, let me read it to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. You're with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God here is described as a shepherd. We are his sheep who he leads to quiet waters. And yet when the valley comes, life gets tough. And what does God do? He prepares a table. It's like, it's like he, he says, come and, come and sit down. Come on. Come and sit down. Come and sit down. And you're like, you're sitting there. God invites you into this table. And he says, sit, sit down. Sit. He prepares a table for you. I imagine it filled with like loads of, you know, loads of fruit and charcuterie and all sorts of beautiful things to enjoy. And God invites you to sit down with him. Now, I've always read these, these scriptures and thought it's a bit weird, if I'm honest, because it says, you prepare a table before me, and you think it's going to say, and my enemies are nowhere to be seen. Right? But that's the natural flow of it. You're going through the valley, and God's like removed your enemies, and you're together with him on the table. But no, it says, you prepare a table before me, where? In the presence of my enemies. My enemies are all around. Why does God do that? Why is he there? Like, what? You're feasting with him, you're, you're enjoying food with him. In the presence of my enemies. Why? Because when cancer comes and gets you, God brings the table right where you are. The enemy is still there, but he's there with you with the table. When you hear the worst news that you've ever heard in your life from a family member, God prepares the table right there in the thick of it as you walk through the valley. Your enemy is there, but God is here. And he invites you in to sit with him. And when you struggle and you feel depression and you, you have the worst mental health in the world and you're like, this is horrible. God prepares a table 
for you. And you know he doesn't always eradicate the enemy straight away. You know they're there. But he's here. Because God uses this idea of meeting with him around a table as a beautiful image. It's a beautiful thing. Or think about the Lord's Supper, when, which we're going to be celebrating tonight. Where Jesus takes that ancient Passover meal and he changes it. And he says, this bread, this wine that that you receive, this is me. This is me. You're, You're like, this is representing my body and my blood that's going to be poured out and broken. And God says, do this as God's people in remembrance of Jesus. We're going to do this later on tonight. God meets his people around a table. And God has called us now as Christians to offer hospitality. There's huge calls in the New Testament where God says, meet with each other, eat with each other, meet in each other's homes. It's a beautiful thing. And when we, th- when, when we think of uh, hospitality, we often think of like, I don't know, like when Kat and I host, sometimes I think it's an excuse for me to show off. For me to show off my home, my cooking skills or whatever it is. No, it, it doesn't matter if your house is a mess. You can invite someone in, pull them up a chair. Like, come on, let's, let's do life together. Tell me your story. Tell me what's, what's going on. How are you doing? Be vulnerable with each other. This is a beautiful thing. God calls us together to meet each other through this table, through this meal. And here, we get this final image of yet another table. And it's a feast. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. It kind of feels like the night before the marriage take place, takes place, which we're going to see next week. And Jesus is there, and his people are there. Jesus is the host. He provides the food. He brings the clothing. He's dressed in white, pure, spotless. And what does it say? Blessed are the ones invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. When Jesus sits down, you know it's done, don't you? You know there's nothing more to do. And here, there is no enemy around at all. Free from the beast. Free from the dragon. Free from sin and death and destruction and cancer and depression, whatever. We'll think more about this next week. But I want to show you something else as well as we go through this. And, and it's the millennium. The millennium. Now, this, that means a thousand years. This is, a, this is a big topic of conversation. And we've only got a very short time. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on it. And we're going to figure out what's going on. This is in chapter 20. So I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 20. Here we go. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient snake who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. And because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So here we've got this, this millennium, this, this thousand years, and we're told it's, it's, it's a time when Christ reigns, aren't we? It's a time when Satan is thrown into this pit, the abyss, and, and, and he's kind of locked away somewhat. And, and it's a time when Jesus reigns with his people on earth. A thousand years. What on earth is this talking about? Well, there's three common views that Christians take. I want to talk about them briefly, and then I want to show you what I think and why. Okay? You might think differently. That's okay. Here's the three big views. Number one, they've all got cool names. Premillennial is the first one. Okay? Some of you are making notes. I love this. You can write this down. Premillennial. So that's where Jesus returns, like the the kind of big return. He returns before a literal period of 1,000 years, which you might think that you, you can make sense from this. Um, It it generally goes along with reading Revelation quite literally. So a lot of the things map onto specific events in our time and culture. So this means that and this means that. And it often means that that Christians who hold this view live in a really, uh, what should we say, pessimistic way. Because it's almost like God's church is getting worse and worse and worse, according to this view, until Christ returns. And then a thousand years. That's the first one, pre-millennial, pre-millennial, because Jesus returns before the millennium, yeah? Second one, you follow him, post-millennial, okay? This is where Jesus returns, when? After the thousand years. Uh, Again, a literal thousand years, most people think. Some people would say, we're in that now, maybe. The the real thousand years have started. Some people say it's yet to come. Some, Some people don't know. And generally, people who hold this view have quite an optimistic view on God's church, Life's growing, it's booming. Life is going to get easier for Christians throughout as history goes on. So pre-millennial, post-millennial. There's a third one, and that's a-millennial or a-millennial. And that's where, as you read the whole of Revelation, we don't take it literally, but kind of metaphorically because it's apocalyptic writing. Remember, we thought about that earlier, that images have meaning, numbers have meaning as you go through the book of Revelation. So a thousand years, people who hold to the amillennial view might say it's 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is a number of power. And three, 10 times 10 times 10. This is kind of complete, a, a big, complete period of time, perhaps, is what this view would say. And, and, and people with this kind of view would say, like, you know, that verse, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, perhaps. Um, and to be honest, as you look through, you can see kind of good things in all three and also flaws in all three, if, if we're being really honest. And I want to say this, that whatever your view is, there's so much more we agree on in Revelation than we disagree on. Ultimately, we all know that Jesus wins. We know that Satan gets locked up, that he loses. 
And we know that there's a battle right now for God's people as we live in obedience to him. That we can agree on. And I don't think St. James has a particular official position. I don't know, do we, Chris? No. <laughs> so, so, like, look at the scriptures for yourself. Like, come humbly before God and, and figure it out for yourself. Spend more time. I realize we're just touching on this, but that's all we can do. All I can do is try and show you what I see. So I, I hold to the amillennial view, and the reason is because I think it makes most sense of how we read Revelation for today. And in fact, you've probably noticed that by now, because I've been teaching Revelation in an amillennial way. It changes how you teach the book massively according to which view you hold. Let me tell you why, and there's a couple of things. First of all, I want to take you to Mark chapter 1. Let me read you this. This is Mark 1, 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, in that moment, Jesus launches his ministry. He says the kingdom of God is near, doesn't he? The time has come. And as Jesus launches his ministry, he goes around showing what the kingdom of God is like. He does all these incredible miracles. He heals. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. He calms the storm. All those kind of things. And he points to his death, the ultimate way he's bringing about his kingdom through his blood slain on the cross. And then he gives this command to the disciples. As we went through Acts, you remember, a couple of series ago, we saw this kingdom message being spread globally around the world as it goes to the ends of the earth. This kingdom moves out. And as it does so, when Jesus is around, demons are petrified of him. When Jesus rocks up, they're not like standing there with their hands on their hips, like trying to outdo Jesus. No, they're like quivering. They're always coming up with excuses. They're always like, ah, you're so... Ah. And so with that in mind, let me read you now from Matthew chapter 12. And this is one of the stories where Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man. Let me read this to you. Then they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David, do you think? Sorry, that was my adding. I wasn't in the scriptures. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, I never know how to say this, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here's the key. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. You see what's going on there? Jesus is healing this demon-possessed man and driving out the demon, not by another demon living in him, but by the Spirit of God. Do you see that? It's in the Scriptures there. Why can he do that? Because, he says in verse 29, the strong man has been bound. 
the strong man has been bound. He's talking of Satan here, the enemy. And so it's like Satan has been locked away in this prison, so to speak. As Jesus came and his kingdom started on earth, demons flee from him because their master, Satan, has been locked up. The strong man has been bound. And Jesus says, then they can plunder the house. Do you see, that's how he can cast out demons, he says. And so Satan from his prison cell can still make phone calls and call on the kings of the, kings of the world and the, the culture and things and say, do your worst. Here's what I want you to do, off you go. But he himself is chained and locked away. The strong man has been bound. And think about that in terms of revelation. When was the last time we heard about Satan? It was all the way back in chapter 13, actually, with the dragon, remember? Since then, we've seen loads about the beasts and cultures and kings and kingdoms that do his bidding, but we've not heard about him for ages because the strong man is bound. And I love that verse. Jesus says, whilst he's bound, go into his house and take all his stuff. It's like the world is the stomping ground for Christians now. Not in a weird, like, crushy way, but in a beautiful way in that Jesus has given us the best news to share with his world. The kingdom carries on going out as Satan is bound. Plunder the world, billions of Christians. Christianity isn't shrinking, but, but maybe it's shifting around different parts of the world. We could say that. And what's the result of this battle in Revelation 20 that we see? Let's read the next bit in chapter 20, verse 7. So it says this, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, once this thousand years end, I would say this period we're living in right now has ended a long time, 10 times, 10 times, 10. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome. This is what happens. This is the end. This is the final battle. And, and it's a bit of an anticlimax, really, isn't it? It's like a huge army. You can't count them on Satan's side. And they surround God's people. Verse 9 just says, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is no match. Satan and his schemes and his plans cannot compare to the lamb who rules and reigns. And so I want to say a few things. We, we can't cover everything in these passages. I'm sorry. But hopefully that's whetted your appetite. Go away and read them some more and get to grips with these truths. Let me say a few things. If you're here tonight and 
you're someone who's like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've nailed my colors to the mast. I'm giving it a go. Then I want to I I encourage you some homework this week to gather together with your, your Christians, you know, the Christians around you that you love and care for, your small group, your, I don't know, the people you go out to the pub after the gathering with. Or, gather with them this week, next week, and have a meal together. Sit down together around the table that God has ordained and, and be vulnerable with each other and say, how are you doing? Ask each other's story. How did you come to faith? Tell, like, tell me. And then pray for each other. Be like, hey, can, can I pray for you? Did I just say that? I'm going to pray for you now. And then just watch. Someone else will pray for you, and it, and it will be a beautiful thing. It might be weird to start with. Give it a go. Because God meets his people in the table. And as we do this, we can look forward to the final wedding supper of the Lamb, free from our enemies, Satan bound, and even worse, destroyed, done with, finished, away. It doesn't matter what kind of meal you cook. It doesn't matter how clean your house is. Maybe you think my house isn't big enough. I don't know, go to a restaurant, go to a cafe, go to a pub, make a picnic, go in a park, gather together wherever the table is or the picnic rug and enjoy time together with God's people, building each other up to this day that we will reach. And perhaps you're here tonight and you're not someone who follows Jesus. Then I want to say this to you. Blessed is the one who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You are invited. And don't think that anything can stop you. Not the enemies that surround you. None of that. Your depression can't stop this invitation. Your, your failed marriage can't stop this, in, this invitation. Your cancer diagnosis can't stop this invitation. Whatever it is, you are invited. And there's blessing in it. All through Revelation, we've seen this command to repent, haven't we? It's an invitation, not a, not a dirty word, but to come back. Come back to the Father's arms. He wants to sit with you. He wants to eat with you and enjoy you being around. All because of Jesus. And then let's read this final bit of chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the moment of final judgment. This is it. Time is up at this point. It's too late. The invitation has run out. But we're not there yet. God in his mercy is holding off this day. Why? Because he's got an invitation on the table for you. He wants you with him, not against him. And so maybe for you tonight, tonight's the night. 
that you say, God, I've been wandering and I don't know, I've just been sitting at my own table all by myself trying to fill it with all sorts of things, but I want, I'm coming to yours tonight. I'm coming over to your place. And I'm trusted in the blood of the Lamb to, to forgive my sins and to wash me clean so that on my record, there is no bad deed. So when the book of life is open, he sees perfection. That's what I'm resting on. That can be you tonight. The invitation is open. Maybe if you're a believer, you're you're sitting at this table, you're enjoying communion with God, but perhaps you kind of kicked back a bit. I don't know, you got your feet up on the table. And you got swept away with the busyness of life or whatever it is for you. You're dry, you're not plundering the world, you're, not, you're fast asleep perhaps. You can come back. God says come back. And for you, if you've never said, Jesus, be my life, be my all, why not do that tonight? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing as loud as we can. You've got to be with me in this, not just me alone. Because we're going to shout these truths to repel the enemy, because he has not won, and he never will. Because we're on Jesus' team. And then we're going to take communion. We're going to gather around this table tonight. And we're going to share this meal, this supper. We're going to look back to Jesus' death, and we're going to look forward to this supper to come. Band, why don't you come up? Let's take some time to reflect, to pray for ourselves. Father God, thank you that in the end, you win. Thank you that the enemy has nothing against us. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight, for me, that you would help us to rest in these truths and to enjoy eating at the table with you. Thank you that Satan is bound and even though he has power, he doesn't control us anymore. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's forgiven us by his death and resurrection. And Lord, we want to go out into the world now and plunder it. We want to plunder it in love. And by shouting the name of Jesus loudly. Wake us up, God. Fill us with your spirit. Send us out into the world to be light and salt in the darkness. I pray in the name of Jesus.